Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by senior TC reporter focused on fintech. It's Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. Hi, how's everyone today? I think we're good. I think we're all in that post, sorry, pre-disrupt funk, Natasha, in which we're kind of like doing nine things at once. Yeah, I've mm-hmm. kind of been this distant person in my friend's lives, like muttering things about Clubhouse. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm busy. Sorry. And they're like, okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very familiar. uh, I'm learning how to write host scripts. Uh, I need to somehow not forget everyone's name when I'm introducing them on stage and have personality. And the two are at war in my notes. So the struggle is real. You're going to be great. Like as I was joking on Twitter yesterday, it's amazing to me that you're going to co-host the stage and then host equity and then co-host again. And it's just going to be a bunch of like... Alex and diff- you should change shirts or something. I don't know. I just so there's like an end <laughs> scene. I, my plan, and by the way, this is our little note to you that Disrupt is two weeks away and Equity is, as you've heard, opening the show and there will be breakfast there. So come hang out with us. Uh, what I'm going to do, Natasha, is stand in front of, do we have a table? The podcast table? I hope so. I hope we don't have to like sit. That would be strange. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to like, hello, welcome to Disrupt. Now it's time for Equity. Then I'm going to back behind the little thing and sit down and then I'll stand up and be like, that was Equity. And then I'll... I don't know. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Marion, I, I can't wait to like see you drink your espresso live and just like, it's going to be a treat. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a morning person, so I'll definitely be drinking my espresso. My goal is to show up very, very early. Um, anyways, if you don't have a ticket yet, don't forget disrupt code equity will save you a bunch of money Ooh. and uh, we'll see you there. Now, moving on, we have a, a very busy show because we have to talk about very important things, including uh, fizzy water. Why engineers are undercompensated, the the re re rebirth of edtech, what the hell happened to Poshmark, why Elon Musk is back in the news, and then Kim Kardashian. So it's going to be kind of the ye old standard equity episode in that lots is going on. And we're going to start Marianne with something very important, dear to our hearts, fizzy water. Why are we talking about water on the show today? Well, that's what I need you to tell me, because I just don't understand what is the big deal about this water. Like, what does it taste like? Why is this company, Liquid Death, worth $700 million? I was out sick when this news broke. And so, yeah, the headline, the high level headline, I saw two of them. One was that Liquid Death just raised a 70 million round at a 700 million valuation. And then the second headline I saw was, I will defend the $700 million fizzy water by (laughs) Alex Wilhelm. So Alex, I think you have to defend it live now. That's fine. That's fine. I'm here for it. So Katie Roof, a former tech entry and one of the founders of this very podcast, broke the news about Liquid Death raising more venture capital at a new high price. So we're looking at a $700 million post-money valuation, like Natasha said, a $70 million round. So a lot of capital at a nearly unicorn price for a D2C water company. Now, Marianne makes a very good point. What the hell's going on? My rebuttal is that the water is delicious and the company is growing like a fish. I don't not believe it because I will say the past three to four live shows I've been to, which is a lot for me, whether it's a comedy show or a concert, I don't like drinking that much on weekdays. And so I will go to the bar and ask for a mocktail or ask for a bottle of water just to hold something. And the only option is an $8 bottle of of liquid death. And I feel like it has to be the partnerships. We know that that's what matters in D2C. And so I'm like, it has to be exclusivity. There's literally no other water at these things, guys. Like there's, that's insane to me. I mean, Alex, you said it's delicious. Like, what do you mean? I, I guess I need to try it myself to understand. Like, what is so great about it? That's iconic, okay. actually. Yeah. So a couple of things are, are important to point out. So I, I grew up in Oregon on a house that had a well because we were out 
uh, out of town a little bit. And so I grew up drinking what I think is the finest water in the world because it came out of the ground and then into the house and we drank it and it was increíble. And then I would go to my friend's houses that were on the city water system and it tasted like sediment. And so I've always been a bit of a water snob. And as a recovering alcoholic, I drink a lot of fizzy water. So like Natasha, when I'm out at a thing, um, mocktails and water are also my jam. And what Liquid Death has done is create a brand wrapped around a high quality product. And the reason why the water is good is because it has great bubble size, which I know sounds like a small thing, but mouthfeel is important in the fizzy water game. And uh, they've also had kind of a thing about not doing plastic and, you know, they donate 10% of profits to getting rid of plastic and all that, but it's just fun. Okay. So, so I think also part of the appeal from what I'm hearing and what I read is that it's in a can that resembles a beer can. So yes. if you're choosing it's not edgy. to drink alcohol beverages when you're out where almost everyone around you is drinking alcoholic beverages, you feel a little bit less you don't stand out as much, right? Like holding this can. Exactly. I, I think that's really important because, you know, there is a stigma in our society about if you drink or not or how much you drink or and so forth. And most folks are less f- you about it than I am. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, so if you did want to hide a little bit, or maybe you're just like trying to get pregnant, or maybe you're having a health thing, maybe you just don't want to drink. So I think it's a great option. And then the reason why I think the valuation makes sense, we've defended the company thus far. The valuation could make sense because it's growing really quickly. So it's going to do, I think, $130 million revenue this year, wow. up from, I think it was either 45 or $75 million last year. So mm-hmm. obviously, it's doing numbers. And guys, the margins on water have to be good. Yeah, Because it's sure. water. They have to be. <laughs> it's actually like, my, my last point on this is, I, I was thinking about House, the low ABV alcohol brand, mm-hmm. not an alcohol alternative. But clearly higher margins, maybe probably significantly harder to pull off than fizzy water and how that has had to shut down and essentially put itself up for sale. And I feel like we have these two strong examples of DTC businesses, kind of part of the same conversation of alternatives and two different endings, which is kind of a bummer, but interesting to pair up against Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, it's much harder to sell alcohol than it is water because of the law. There's a lot of rules and and regulations around that. And it's also harder to raise money for alcohol. Anyway, we won't get into that right yes, now. That, that's a whole different story. Anyways, Liquid Death is amazing. I drink it whenever I can. Sadly, it's hard to find in Providence, but I do occasionally buy a 12-pack, I guess, at Whole Foods whenever I can. So shout out to the Liquid Death team for making heavy metal water cool. All right. Now, Marianne, engineers are famously underpaid and underappreciated in the modern economy, and how to compensate them, quote, fairly is a hot topic. Yeah. So I, this week, I wrote about a company, a new company called Comprehensive, and it is looking to help startups figure out what to pay, not just their engineers, but employees generally. And this is interesting to me for a few reasons. Number one, this seems to be a really hot and crowded space. Like we've covered at TechCrunch at least four companies doing a similar thing over the past year. This one stood out to me a little bit because the co-founder, Roger Lee, this is not his first startup. He also founded Human Interest, a 401k provider aimed at SMBs. And that company achieved unicorn status last year. And so I've, I've known Roger for a while. He also created layoffs.fyi when yes. COVID started. So, you know, he's got a track record of building a successful company. He seems to genuinely care about employees having access to financial benefits and just being compensated appropriately. Totally. At first, when I was hearing 401k to startup compensation, I was like, is it is it a stretch? Like, is he going from a different consumer base? It, it does sound like it's obviously 
all about his deep understanding of what employees need and want to and how they're thinking about their money from their from his layoff efforts as well, which I've been waiting Mm -hmm. to see how he was going to monetize that. But it's kind of cool to see him not and just keep that as its own engine of what it is. Mm -hmm. But how out of left field does this feel to you, Alex, when you see someone go from building a unicorn to starting a company right after it hit unicorn status? Well, I mean, we do see a lot of folks build something. And then once it's past the startup phase, and I, I would say that no unicorn is really a startup because if you have a billion dollar valuation, you have tons of capital, you're building out teams at a time, you're more of a smaller private company versus a startup per se. Um, so maybe it was just time to go do something new. I think that Comprehensive has a very competitive market, like Marianne said. And in our piece about this, we noted that the company is trying to combat competition by being more comprehensive. And the question is, is that actually an edge for them? So that's my question. O- overall, though, it's really fun to see people just building stuff. That's my vibe from from this collection of stories because I use layoffs to FYI twice a week. Yeah, yeah, Roger, he's really he really did that. I think more is just a service to to the tech community. So that's admirable. Yeah, he's saying that what they want to do is not just help decide how much an employee should get paid, but things like equity, like how much equity, how much you know, how much they should get in raises, you know, things like that. Um, even like how much to offer. So they're they're wanting to be involved in like every aspect and connect all the various departments within the company to be in on the decision process. So he's already got, or the company's already got customers, including Mercury, LaunchDarkly, Clearbit, Titan, and Clever. So it's got some traction already. It raised $6 million in a seed round actually earlier this year that was not announced until now. Inspired Capital led that round. Well, when it comes to equity, I think the most we can donate is about one show per week if we're going to be divvying this up on a per-employee basis. All right, uh, moving on. Sorry, I'm getting the dad jokes ready. You're going to be so good, Alex. You're going to do great. She's doomed. What happens What happens if your future kid wants to be a writer? Is that going to be like the best dream in the world? Or is it like, I don't want no. more writers? Because I'm too practical about it. Like if, if, if my future children came to me and said, you know, dad, we want to be a writer. I'd be like, well, you need to pick a niche. <laughs> You need to pick a niche where people pay for the writing that you do, and then you need to focus on that niche. And if they say, what about poetry? I'm going to say yes, but also rent. Um, For the record, neither of my children have any interest whatsoever in becoming writers. Damn. My dad is a chemist and my mom runs a small art gallery for a public university. So like I've, we've all strayed from, I think kids can do whatever they want. Yeah, fair. But like you should reserve a Substack URL just in case. Just in case they want one. <laughs> That's a good idea. That's all well, I'm now I should buy. I should buy the darn kids URL. I'll work on that. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, speaking of uh, new languages, when we move into new stages of life, there are still companies out there helping us learn languages. And one of them that we've covered a lot is in the news, Duolingo, which went public and is actually holding on to most of its value as a recent IPO. Natasha has made news. Yes. So Duolingo, I covered really extensively last year, I think, maybe 2020 at this point its whole arc. And one of the details that surprised me was it's this huge ad tech company. It's making revenue, but it has no interest in acquiring other startups. So when they came to me with the news that they finally acquired their first official startup, I was amped. And then I was kind of surprised because it's actually not a language learning company or a competitor. It's an animation studio based in Detroit that has worked for them, but also Amazon, Dropbox, Spotify, and Google. I mean, kind of a household name if you need animations as a startup. So different, but really cool and exciting. So my question about this, the company is Gunner that they've purchased, and it's not the gaming spectacles companies, which I thought was the company named Gunner. So it proves how out of date I am. But Natasha, where does animation fit into 
an ed tech platform focused on language. Duolingo's whole thing is that it can make education really engaging and fun. Sometimes too, it's detriment, right? Like I, I think one tension I explored is like, how do you build an app that's engaging and doesn't feel like learning, but is actually learning? And so I think animation, when I asked their chief business officer, Bob Meese, about it, he said like kind of a very chief business officer answer where he was like, when we launched the Duolingo subscription product and had animation on that page, subscriptions rose. But also there's things that you don't have to always put an economic value on, which is making the app delightful. Animation sits on both kind of the conversions and also just like delightfulness. Something that really um, surprised me in a, in a good way, I guess, you wrote that according to their last earnings report, the company saw a 71% jump in paid subscribers up from the prior year's quarter. I mean, that's that's a huge jump. Now, at the end of the last quarter, they had 3.3 million paid subscribers. Yeah, that was pretty insane, especially given that last time I talked to them, only 3% of their total base was a paid subscriber. And they wanted it to be that way, where they wanted it to be only their superpower users are subscribers. Clearly, that's probably changed. I, I don't imagine that every single subscriber is insanely active. But I always think about that, where they're like, they were really strong about wanting to monetize a very small portion of their user base. Mm. That's the power of software, because the marginal cost to deliver service is so low that essentially you can give away quite a lot of value if your mission is at once to help everyone in the world communicate with one another via languages and also to make money. The question then becomes, as a public company, how do the pressures of those demands impact the ethos at the business? But I will say, if they're buying Gunner just to add delight to the app, it makes it seem like the company hasn't actually given up on being mm -hmm. fun. Right. Definitely. It's kind of a statement, I think, that like sets the scene. Yeah, for what they're looking for. And I imagine from here, like, we're not going to probably see Duolingo acquire a Babel, which is their biggest competitor, because I think that they disagree fundamentally on how language learning should go. But I think we mm -hmm. might see more back end things and refinement. I mean, maybe I, I wish we saw EdTech more EdTech M&A. And I was actually kind of surprised that when our producer, Teresa, put in the show notes this this new story, which is that EdTech's honeymoon may be over, but it's expecting a second boom. I, I, I was like, wait, really? Because I have not been hearing about the second boom. I'm curious what you guys think. Well, the, the data is very interesting. So I think what we've been surprised to see in that report is that uh, early stage investment into EdTech startups is actually up by a third. And I didn't expect that whatsoever. I thought after the EdTech, Marianne, the kind of denouement, if you will, of EdTech in the second half of last year that we were going to see a collapse in the amount of capital flowing in. But it appears that people are still betting that learning digitally is the bee's knees. Yeah, I know the pandemic fueled a lot of the interest in ed tech. And obviously, that died down a bit as everyone went back to school. But that doesn't mean that there's still not need for technology um, and new technology in schools. There's still a huge need for it. I'm surprised even in my own daughter's uh, elementary school, my son's high school, they've pretty much abandoned books altogether. And they just, yeah, I have. I was kind of shocked by it. it. I don't know how I feel about that. But like, they don't have books, textbooks anymore. And they, they do everything like digitally, they do have, you know, worksheets in class, at least in elementary school. But like in high school, it's like 100% digital. I don't want to get into this too much, which I, I do have some reservations about that. I don't feel like everybody learns well, digitally. But anyway, my whole point is there's still a lot of room for innovation in education. There's still a lot of need for it. So ed tech, I don't think is dead. It's just, it's a different kind of interest that we're seeing now than we did during the pandemic, which was focused more on like learning remotely. I think it's a really good point. And Natasha, there's actually a new fund that's been put together called, I think it's Firework Ventures. 
that's somehow focused on the ed tech space still yeah, in yeah. 2022? I know. I know. Well, so Firework is actually taking a branding route that I think I'm seeing a lot of other ed techs do, which is they rebranded from just an ed tech fund to future of work and future of learning fund. And so, I mean, I think it's all pretty much semantics at this point. They were always focused on future of work too. But I was excited to see them close their, it was their first close, 24.3 million, two female GPs. And again, to Marianne's point, I think betting on a broader and different version of EdTech than what a lot of people started associating it with. Like, I think a lot of people associate EdTech with like masterclass and trying to disrupt the way math is taught when like really a lot of it's software and a little bit more venture friendly than like trying to like change the way we add and subtract. So I think we'll see a lot more and I'm excited. I mean, yeah, we, everyone should look at this data because I, it's, it's too much to walk through now, but it's interesting to see how alive EdTech is. Yeah, and we'll have a link to all of our tech stuff in, in the show notes. But uh, Firework Ventures obviously has to get Katy Perry to oh do all their holiday <laughs> parties, right? Because baby, you're a. That's such a good point. Damn. All right, I'll and tell if them. If you don't know the Katy Perry era that I'm talking about, well, imagine you weren't there. Imagine. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on. Keeping the M and A kind of theme alive, Poshmark has been taken off the table. And I want to start before we get into the deal and the acquisition and so forth by just a question about this type of company. We've seen exits now from Poshmark and Depop. There was a big push into the resale market. From your two perspectives, uh, how is that holding up? Natasha, go ahead. I was going to just say, like, I think that like when I heard Depop got acquired, I was like, oh, my God, Etsy so smart. I just acquired a whole generation. And it felt like Depop was like a newer ish play. I don't have the same kind of like And this is me as a consumer, not a reporter. I don't have the same kind of loyalty or excitement when I hear the word Poshmark. I think Poshmark's kind of like a little vaguer to me. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, it's died down since since when I first heard about Depop, which maybe was a year ago. Yeah, I I was a little surprised by this deal. I mean, the acquiring company is a South Korean search giant, which is really interesting, right? It's It's not the type of company that you would expect that would be buying a company like Poshmark, which is a reseller or not a reseller, it's a marketplace, right? Of more luxury goods. Like, I don't know. It was a little bit of a surprise. Yeah. And the deal is worth 1.2 billion on an enterprise value basis. And I think around 1.6 billion if you value it on an equity basis. And uh, that puts it roughly the same price as the Depop deal we saw last year. So everyone was comparing the two kind of transactions. But Depop, when I, I was going back through our coverage prepping for today's show, and if you go back to how we talked about Depop and the sale to Etsy, Natasha's right. We were talking about Gen Z and how this was a major investment in essentially an entire generation of consumers. Poshmark, an American company, Naver, the acquiring company, a South Korean internet conglomerate-ish thing that kind of was born in the first dot-com boom, seems like a strange match, but they are going to keep Poshmark as an independent company, Marianne. So maybe it's Mm -hmm. a foothold in the US or a way to bring attention in, or maybe just a way to flesh out their overall search product. It kind of That's gave what me I'm like trying to think of. I, I, hopefully, this is not like a bad comparison. It kind of gave me Alibaba vibes of like that's they're expanding in this way versus buying out a competitor. Like it felt a little bit broader. So mm-hmm. that was like the first thought I had when you were saying that, Alex. Yeah, the other thing I throw in there is that South Korea is a very dense, very developed nation, but it's not a very big one in terms of overall population. It's not you know China or India, which are nearby. And so with 80 million people that are users of Poshmark, it could actually expand the neighbor user base relatively quickly. It could be a material chunk. Yeah. I mean, and Kyle Wiggers, who wrote the piece, pointed out that neighbor sees ways to like help boost Poshmark and like search results, things like that. So I guess, you know, there are things that maybe we haven't even thought of and ways that they can each help complement each other's businesses. 
Yeah, I, I went through the investor presentation about this. And one thing that stuck out is they really do expect revenue growth at Poshmark to reaccelerate. And, you know, the company's recent numbers aside, they're looking for more than 20% growth and some savings. Dang. So suddenly the company might grow a little faster, be a little more profitable, buying at kind of a market low for this sort of thing. Maybe it makes sense because, you know, neighbors paying a lot less per each dollar of GMV in the Poshmark sense than Etsy did for the Depop deal last year, just given what's changed in the valuations landscape. So it's almost like a discount deal to a degree. Yeah, thanks. Not so. to be rude, but you know, no, it's- th- th- that's honestly the question I had. So thank you for saying it so bluntly. <laughs> um, and I was going to say that I feel like we all jinxed the fact in a good way that we weren't seeing as many M&A transactions as we thought we would, because this would be like the year of M&A. And now like our show is 90% M&A, which takes us to our next deal. <laughs> yes. Sticking to the theme of M&A because there are no IPOs, insert crying emoji here. The Elon <laughs> Musk Twitter deal probably is now going through. It, it seems that Elon has given up trying to get out of the deal he forced into existence and now will pay fifty-four twenty per share for Twitter, valuing the social network at around $44 billion. Wow. Thoughts, everybody? <laughs> I'll go first because I don't have a strong one at all. This happened on Tuesday, and you're listening to this on a Friday, maybe a Saturday, maybe late. Things could have changed by the time that this episode comes out, and so a huge asterisk to everything we say. And, and that is my take. But no, jokes aside, I feel like it was it was interesting to see this happen now. We knew that the Musk versus Twitter trial was set to begin kind of smack dab in the middle of Disrupt on October 17th. So that's <laughs> up for question now. Um, and I think Amanda put it well. For tech journalists, especially those at TechCrunch, this is a blessing because now we don't have to miss out on drama because we'll be on stage interviewing people. I mean, I think that it's believed that that's part of the reason why he decided to move forward with the deal is that he wanted to avoid trial and he didn't want, I think the judge was ordering deeper dives into communications he had with the alleged whistleblower, things like that. So, I mean, honestly, after as hard as he's fought over the past couple of months for him to kind of cave right now, makes me really curious as to what he doesn't want to be shared with the public. Yeah. I wonder also how much of it is just his friends all texting him things like, hey, do you want a billion dollars? And I, and they probably didn't expect their private communications to end up not just <laughs> in the public sphere, but dissected by the entire technology Twitter community and ruthlessly mocked. Ooh. <laughs> it was a it was a fun day. People were like waiting for that. I I had a blast. It was <laughs> if you followed the Adam Levine Instagram DMs fracas. This was the equivalent of that in the technology world because we don't cover celebrities per se. Good analogy. There are many good memes. We'll put that aside. Let's just handicap this and then move on. Natasha, you go first. Uh, Percent chance the deal happens loosely at the original price sometime in the next three months. What's your What's your guess? I would like. I'm going to say yes. It's going to happen because if it doesn't happen, then I don't know what to believe anymore. So okay, that's that's where I'm at too. Marianne, do you have a dissenting view? Yeah, I, I think same. I think he's really, like I said, I feel like Elon's trying to avoid something in a big way. And so, you know, he's wi- he's willing to just go ahead and get this over with. But you never know, right? How many times have we seen things change over the course of the past few months with regard to this deal? Exactly. Yeah. The last thing I'll, I'll say, and then we're going to move on to a very important story about crypto shilling, is that uh, there's been some commentary that the CEO of Twitter actually has been holding up pretty well. I think it's in Parag, and he's been I mean, he got this job and then the whole world exploded underneath him. And so you got to give the guy points for just being in a tough spot. But if you look at the text messages he had with Elon, very measured, very calm, 
a level of maturity, I'm just going to say it, that I don't have. Because if Elon Musk was posting in my SMS, I would be very cross with him. And Parag was just so mature. And so I think the only person who comes out from this entire episode looking good is the current CEO of Twitter. That's a great take. And one that I haven't heard much. I'll, I'll yeah. co-sign that. Agree. Shout out Bloomberg for writing that and letting me paraphrase it. I forget who wrote <laughs> that story at Bloomberg, but you're great. All right. Closing out the day. Do you guys remember the ICO boom back when there were all those initial coin offerings in like 2017 and everyone was like raising like $100 million on the back of their white paper idea for a blockchain? I, I joined Crunchbase when you were shaking that off, when both of you were shaking that off, I think. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a lifetime ago, but... I mean, it's five years ago in tech, which is essentially three lifetimes. Um, but the ICO boom came and went, and then we had a crypto winter, and then we came back, and suddenly through 2021, we had another crypto upcycle, if you will. And one element of this explosion in interest on the consumer side was celebrity endorsements, essentially of various coins, various NFT sets, and so forth. And uh, Natasha, we saw a bunch of celebrities out there shilling, if you will, and not everyone had their disclosures where they needed to be. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, make sure you do it. And then people are like, nah, no. it's fine. No, you should do it because you'll get fined by the SEC. So on, on Monday, again, big news day, we learned that Kim Kardashian was charged by the SEC for promoting a crypto security sold by Ethereum Max. And she's going to have to pay a $1.26 million penalty. The mistake that she made was really disclosure. She should have disclosed that she was paid 250000 to publish a post about it. And we see celebrity endorsements all the time. And so it felt like a kind of a huge mistake. Not one that I think people necessarily notice in the moment, but definitely has a lot of people talking right now. I mean, honestly, like, didn't Kim Kardashian, like, isn't she trying to become a lawyer? She's not stupid. Obviously, she knew what she was doing when she chose not to make this sort of disclosure. Was she a lawyer then? Or was that something that happened later? She definitely has lawyers around her at all times. Like, I doubt she even posted the story herself. Yeah, that's my that's my question. Was it someone on her team? But then again, if I was, okay, my knowledge of celebrity as, as business is limited. But like, if you have Kim Kardashian's Instagram account, you have a megaphone that can elevate a brand, yes. sell out a series of items. You can... It's essentially a weapon, right? The price jumped by 82% after her post. And then it crashed days later. I have the chart pulled up and it's one of the ugliest charts I've ever seen. So if you go back in time to the 2021 era, the, the value in USD for Ethereum Max, which is the thing in question, went from a bajillionth of a cent per all the way up to it's 0.00000047 dollars per coin. Anyways, the point is, and then it lost all, all of its value from there. Now it's worth 0.00000000503 per coin. I, I don't know how to say that in English, but the point is it did spike and now has gone to effectively 0.0. .0. And so what was she thinking? She doesn't need a quarter million dollars. Why promote this? I don't know. Like I said, I mean, I, I try to give her the benefit of the doubt because she's been in the news quite a lot. But again, in this situation, I, I kind of agree with Anita and Dom. I mean, really, like this, this was just unnecessary. Again, if it wasn't her directly, which I still think she must have had some knowledge of it, right. whoever handled it should have known better. You don't put this kind of post out there without making it clear that she somehow received money. That disclosure was crucial. And then SEC chair, Gary Glensler posted a message on Twitter saying celebrity endorsements should not be construed as financial advice. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't see it that way. I mean, they see the endorsement. They're like, okay, I should look into this. And, you know, these celebrities should know better. Yeah. And the very fact that there's even kind of an excuse that people use where like, it's not financial advice. Like, how could you ever think that? I don't buy it at all. So I think you're spot on, Marianne. It's so funny to me that we talked about Kim Kardashian 
two weeks ago about being a business mogul and making smart decisions. I don't think this necessarily takes away from that, but it does like change my mind on a point I made at the time, which was how her starting a private equity firm versus a VC oh, firm. That's right. Yeah. I was like, okay, if she, so, someone says on Twitter, I don't think I even thought this myself. Her starting a private equity fund was her de-risking herself from being associated with a flailing startup. Clearly that's not necessarily going to stop when you're doing a bunch of different business decisions and spreading your brand so wide. You're always going to have some sort of like faux pas and mistakes that happen. And this much money is not a huge deal, but it just, I don't know. It, to me, it's kind of like her starting a, a private equity fund wasn't necessarily her trying to like avoid all mistakes. Yeah, I think I, so the total volume of Ethereum max that was traded in the last 24 hours, according to coin market cap was $7,900 worth. Uh, the total value of Ethereum max is 11.5 million. And just to put it into context, Dogecoin is worth like 10 billion Ooh. and it's a joke. So <laughs> Ethereum max is really worth effectively zero. And, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to do this math in my head, but I, I believe that the total supply of Ethereum max is two quadrillion tokens. Okay. Or it's two, two trillion. I'm, I'm doing this on the fly, but it, it's a huge number. Could there be a more obvious pump and dump? And so I think Natasha's point about her being involved with private equity and building apps back in the day and so forth, it proved that this was a very big lapse in judgment. Yes. And, I, and, and, and for shame. And she's paid the price for it, which is large. And, you know, my question is just who's next? Yeah. The Kardashians are selling a ton of stuff right now. And I think there needs to be a little bit of inward thinking. Not that they're listening to us right now, but just something that I, I think like it doesn't help. It offends me, honestly. It gets to the point of like, I mean, you've got a load of money. Don't you care about the people who don't have a lot of money? And they're like deciding to invest this hard-earned cash because you touted it on your Instagram page. I mean, that's just crappy in my opinion. And it, it really, I feel like it's, it's disrespectful to all these people following her. I mean, again, she should have known better. Right. No one's surprised that people, Kim Kardashian is not surprised that people listen to Kim Kardashian, right? Like, right. That's, that's what thing. she wants. I mean, that's what she's trying to do. So I, have, I really don't have sympathy for her at all here. Well, Marianne, don't forget the cardinal rule of equity is never cry for the wealthy. So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we're, we're not going to, to defend her. I, I will say, though, she was famous earlier this year for the whole nobody wants to work thing. And um, <laughs> yes, Kim, it's because when I post on Instagram, which I don't, uh, no one writes me a quarter million dollar check to shill <laughs> coins. I wouldn't I would I would love to work for a quarter million dollars per Instagram <laughs> post. Sign me up. Uh, Imagine. OK, we're out of time. Disrupt 12 days. I think over 11 days. It's coming up so soon. We're looking at our flights. We're going to San Francisco. We're all crashing the Tasha's house. We eat all of her food. It's going to be a blast. <laughs> I can't wait to see you both there. I can't wait to record live with you on Tuesday. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk to you Monday morning. Bye. 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 Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporters, Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsola with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week.